Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll be reading together verses 18 through 32, focusing particularly on verses 24 through 32. This is God's Word. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Would you come now? Would you search us? Would you know us? Lord, would you divide to the depths of our soul that you might reveal the secrets of our heart, that we might have grace to repent, to turn to Christ, to look to him alone for our righteousness, for forgiveness, for salvation. Lord, we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Last month, a paper was published in the journal Nature uh, that present archaeological evidence of a fiery event at a city uh, in the Jordan River Valley thousands of years ago. Uh, these archaeologists found human remains that appear to have been incinerated. Uh, there were pottery shards that were melted. There were melted metals uh, found in the rubble. Uh, there was quartz rock that had uh, cracks in it that only form under intense pressures. Now these archaeologists hypothesized that uh, a meteor exploded above these cities and uh, there was a resulting air burst and, and fireball uh, that incinerated uh, everything 
uh, in the vicinity of this airburst, and, and the city was, would have burst into flames. Now, as you can imagine, the researchers don't believe that they have found Sodom and Gomorrah, but they do propose that the oral tradition of this supposed cosmic fireball eventually uh, became the written biblical account in the book of Genesis uh, of fire and brimstone falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this article came to mind as I was preparing for our sermon this morning, and I mention it to you because I wonder if when you think of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, as Paul speaks here, does the story of Sodom and Gomorrah come to mind? Probably so. Archaeologists may not believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were really judged by God for the reasons given by Moses in the book of Genesis, but Christians do. It wasn't just Moses that spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Zephaniah, Jesus himself believed that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter, his apostle, confirms it in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you know the story, you know that these towns were notoriously wicked. In Genesis 18, you remember right before Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, God told Abraham that he, if he found ten righteous people in the cities, he would spare them. But he did not. He only found righteous Lot and his family. And as the story goes, you realize that uh, Lot's wife and daughters uh, were not very righteous. And Lot himself does not appear to be righteous. If, if it were not for Peter in 2 Peter 2 calling Lot a righteous man, you might be tempted to say, well, Lot wasn't very righteous either. Sodom and Gomorrah was a city notorious for sexual immorality, particularly homosexuality. But Ezekiel chapter 16 tells us that that wasn't their only sin. Uh, no, uh, they were filled with pride and haughtiness. They had excess food and, and abundant prosperity, but they could not care less about the poor and the needy. And so for all these reasons, the Lord obliterated those cities from the face of the earth. And who knows, maybe he did use a cosmic fireball and a meteor exploding over the sky. But however he did it, the reason I'm talking about this is because we tend to think of God's judgment the way that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. Uh, this cataclysmic destruction uh, that removes the wicked and stops sinners in their tracks and, and brings an end to their sinning. Now, that is true. And that is often the way God judges a people. And, and it certainly will be the way that God judges the whole creation at the last day. But in our text this morning... Paul tells us that God's wrath also comes in more mysterious and subtle ways. Ways that may not look at first glance like wrath being revealed at all. Now remember what the apostle is doing here in this text. He is talking about why it is necessary for God to reveal his righteousness to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the answer that he's giving us here in verses 18 and following is that it is necessary for God to reveal his righteousness because the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, all of those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Now, Paul in this section is particularly focusing upon the lawless Gentile nations who didn't have the special revelation of, of God's word spoken and written. But they did have the creation. They had what we call general revelation. They had all that they needed to know God and to honor God 
proclaimed through the creation, through nature. But instead of honoring him, instead of living for him as the one true God, Paul tells us that they exchanged his immortal glory for images of mortal beings. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And now, in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul tells us how God responds to our idolatry. He tells us how God's wrath has been and is being revealed. He lays out for us a general principle, and then he gives us specific examples of this principle. Let's look at those two things together this morning. First, the general principle, God's wrath is revealed in a surprising way. And what is that way? Well, in verses 24 to 32, Paul tells us that God punishes sin with more sin. Let me say that again. God punishes sin with more sin. Now, this is strange, isn't it? The divine retribution for sin in the religious realm, idolatry, is sin in the moral realm. The idolatrous are abandoned into ever-increasing acts of immorality. This seems counterintuitive. Why would God judge sin by permitting and decreeing even more sin? It's probably not how you typically think of the revelation of the wrath of God. But there it is in the text. You see it in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. We read that in response to mankind's idolatry, God gave them up. Verse 24, therefore, because they had exchanged the glory of the invisible and immortal God for visible images of mortal things, God gave them up to impurity, Paul says. Verse 26, for this reason, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to have and to retain God in knowledge, they didn't see fit to care about theology, which is the study of God, the knowledge of God. God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, now these three sentences are parallel expressions of God's judgment upon fallen man with increasing specificity of the sin to which he gave them up. Now, for us to grasp the nature of God's wrath that Paul is teaching us here in this text and to grasp how God's actions are indeed a judgment against sin. It's important that we understand this verb that Paul is using three times. He gave them up. It's, it's the same verb that is used of Jesus being turned over to the Jewish leaders and to the Romans to be crucified, being delivered into their hands. Paul is saying here that God reveals his wrath by delivering sinners over even more completely into the hands of their sinful orientation, into the darkness that they have chosen. For, of course, God does not originate their moral condition, but he finds us in our natural state already fully immersed in the lust of our hearts, as he says in verse 24. And thus he consigns fallen sinners to indulge those lusts even more fully. Essentially, God is telling us in this passage that he judges sinners even in this life by actively giving them what they want, letting them go their own way. He lays down the reins that would restrain them, that would 
pull them back. He, he takes away the gates and the fences that had been keeping them from being even worse than they were. In judgment, you see, God ensures that sinners will be led into even more sin. So that as Paul puts in Ephesians 4.19, a parallel passage to this one, they themselves give themselves over to sensuality by indulging their lust, by indulging the seducing temptations of the devil, by plunging even more deeply into these rebellious paths they have already chosen. And so earning for themselves, Paul says, an even greater measure of wrath on the day of wrath, the day of judgment on the last day. Paul's going to put it this way in the next chapter. He's going to say that, that, that outside of Jesus Christ, we store up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 2.16, he puts it like this. We fill up the measure of our sin. And even all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, as God speaks to Abraham about the, the iniquity of the Amorite, the Canaanite, he says it is not yet complete. So you see, there is a very real sense in which C.S. Lewis is correct when he writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, that those who are in hell even now are enjoying forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. Fallen man tells God, leave me alone. And God does just that in judgment. Let me paint some pictures for you. If this is perhaps a, a difficult way to understand God's wrath, think of a, a dog that is uh, on a leash, but he, he sees a cat and he wants to chase that cat, but he's held back by one of those leashes where you push the button and, and the cord runs out. God judges sinners, Paul tells us. Sinners who are itching to run even more ferociously after their sin he judges sinners by pushing the button and letting the leash out. And as they pursue their sin, it takes them directly into the path of the 18-wheeler of his judgment on the last day. Or think of a man who is in a rowboat tied to a dock on the Niagara River. The sinner is rowing fiercely, trying to get away from the dock of God's holiness. And God, in wrath, Paul says, Unties the rope and gives it a judicial push downstream where it will be hurled headlong over Niagara Falls, his judgment forever. But we don't have to make up illustrations, do we? The Old Testament is full of them. I think of Pharaoh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart because of his sin, the way that he treated God's people. His pride is arrogance. And so what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh hardens his heart all the more against God and against his people. Or think of Israel that we read of in Jeremiah 2 this morning. So badly they wanted to live like the nations, to be like the countries around them. They wanted to worship their gods and live immorally like them. And so eventually God delivers them over to those nations in the judgment of exile. You see, God's judgment is often ironic, even poetic. We think of the book of Esther and how Haman builds this gallows to hang Mordecai, and yet he himself ends up being hung on his own gallows. God's punishment always fits the crime. It's always proportional to the offense. And we see that even here. Those that do not honor God, Paul tells us, are given over into sexual impurity that dishonors their own bodies with dishonorable passions. They attack the glory of God 
So their own glory and dignity are diminished. Calvin puts it like this. They seek to extinguish the sun, and therefore they deserve to be blind in the middle of the day. Paul tells us those that exchange the truth of God for a lie and the creator for the creature are given over to exchange the natural sexual function between a man and a woman for an unnatural sexuality. Those who deem God unfit to have in knowledge, verse 28, who don't see God as worthy to acknowledge, God gives them over to an unfit and unworthy mind that leads to unfit and unworthy deeds. So it may surprise us as we read this text to to hear Paul saying that God punishes sin by handing the sinner over to commit even more sin. But it is a fitting judgment. So here's the point. It's easy, isn't it, to look at an individual or a group or a people or even a, a nation behaving in a way that is unrestrained, this unrestrained pattern of wickedness, and to think They are going to be judged by God if they continue in this way. And it's true. Unless God grants them the grace of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be judged by God. But what you must see, what Paul wants you to see here in this passage, is that what is even more fundamentally true is that they are already standing under the judgment of God. They are currently experiencing his condemnation. His wrath is now being revealed present tense, in the, in the very mere fact that he has given them over to their sinfulness. God's wrath is not merely a not yet thing, a thing for the last day, but God's wrath is an already thing. It's something that is even now being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? And does it change the way that you even speak to those who are outside of Christ? And if you yourself are outside of Christ this morning, do you recognize, do you recognize that you are under the wrath of God? That your rebellion against him is leading him to respond by giving you over to your sin. Well, Paul goes on in this passage to give us specific ways that this wrath is revealed. It's not just revealed in a surprising way, but in specific ways, secondly. And, and I want you to see these, these ways, that, that these sins that are manifestations of God's wrath upon a person or a people. The first sin that Paul mentions in this passage is sexual sin. In verse 24, that word impurity is a word that is frequently related to sexual immorality. And then in verses 26 and 27... Paul points specifically to homosexuality, one of the vilest forms of sexual uncleanness and a sin that was commonly practiced and approved in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's own day. Now, of course, in our day, Western culture views what Paul is saying here as bigoted hate speech. And at some point in the probably not-too-distant future, preaching a sermon like this uh, about this topic will land pastors in America in prison, even as it had already done in Places like Great Britain. And yet, contrary to the 72% of Americans who told the Pew Research Center last year that homosexuality should be accepted by society up from 51% in 2002, God is clear in this text and elsewhere in the Bible that homosexuality is not something that he accepts. It is not something that he approves of. Rather, it is unequivocally declared to be a sin to be unnatural, inherently sinful, 
It is something dishonorable, Paul says, and degrading and disgraceful and shameful. And you notice that Paul here in this passage mentions both homosexual passion and desire, burning and desire for the same gender, but also he mentions homosexual practice. And either way, whether you think of same-sex attraction or same-sex sexual relations, homosexuality, Paul says, is contrary to nature because it is, is it a disordered violation of God's created order for how men and women ought to relate sexually. And it is something, he tells us here, to which God gives people over as an expression of his wrath. That ought to humble us as we think about our own country. Perhaps it, as we think about folks in our family, perhaps you yourself, listen to what Paul is saying here. But it's very easy to focus on verses 26 and 27 and to miss the parallel expressions of God's wrath in verses 28 to 32. What is Paul's point in Romans 1 through 3? It is to prove that apart from Christ, everyone is sinful. No one is righteous. All stand condemned under God's wrath. And so if this morning you sit there and you read this passage and you say, well, I'm glad that I'm not same-sex attracted. I'm glad that, that I don't have sex with someone of the same gender. But don't you see, Paul would say, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook for the list of actions of an abased mind in verses 28 to 32 catch every one of us in his net. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever been envious? Have you ever had strife or discord with someone else? Have you ever lied? Have you ever gossiped or slandered another? Have you ever been boastful or haughty? Have you ever been disobedient to your parents? Have you ever been foolish or faithless or ruthless or heartless? Have you ever done something even though you knew it was wrong to do? Or have you ever cheered someone on in their sin? encouraging them either to join you in sin or giving approval to their sinning even though you don't act that way maybe any longer. John Murray does not mince words about verse 32. He, he says this, to put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. We hate others as we hate ourselves and therefore render to them the approval of what we know merits damnation. None of us in this room escape unscathed from this chapter. And yet it is so easy, isn't it? To look at our particular mixture of sin and say, well, it's not as bad as that person over there, particularly, maybe we think, that homosexual over there. Now, to be sure, our larger catechism rightly understands the Bible when it tells us this, that all sins are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And yes, we should be able to affirm that the unnaturalness of homosexuality, as Paul declares it here, whether it's lust or engaging in sexual acts, Though the world, and unfortunately even some in the church, might encourage it and say, hey, pridefully come out, pridefully embrace and own this identity and live a life of so-called flourishing by indulging your lust. We must see that homosexuality is a spiritual sin 
And if you are struggling with that and engaging in it, not struggling and fighting against it, but struggling with it and engaging in it, Paul says you are in spiritual danger. But here is something that you may not have noticed in the Gospels. Jesus makes this fascinating comment in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, to those who lived in Capernaum where he had done so many of his works. He says this, If the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you. What is Jesus saying there? He is saying far more egregious than homosexuality is to know about the mighty deeds of Jesus, to have heard the gospel and to fail to repent and to believe in him, to refuse to turn from sin to God in sorrow and in faith for what Jesus has done for sinners in his life and death. Listen, in our country, in our culture, there are folks who are homosexual and they've never heard the gospel. But every single one of you in this room, every single one of you watching on live stream has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are hearing it even this morning. How will you respond to it? That's what Paul wants you to ask yourself today. For the truth is that since the fall of Adam, all of us, all of us are naturally polluted by sin from birth. All of us by nature are dead in our sins. We are children of wrath. We are children deserving wrath. We are deserving to be given over to our sin unto our ultimate ruin. Verse 32, we deserve to die both in this life and eternally in the life to come. You see, our larger catechism, after saying that that not all sins are equally heinous. Some are more egregious, more heinous than others. Two questions later writes this, every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty and the goodness and the holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserve his wrath and curse, both in this life, as Paul is laying out for us here, and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated. That means cannot be atoned for, cannot be covered in the sight of God but by the blood of Christ. You see, to leave this chapter and to say, whew, I'm glad that didn't apply to me, is to completely miss Paul's point. Paul wants to drive each and every one of you to see that you are a sinner, deserving of death, deserving of God's wrath, and to see your absolute need for the righteousness outside of yourself a righteousness of faith, a righteousness provided by God to everyone who believes, the righteousness of Jesus Christ reckoned to your account through faith. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the hope for every single one of you who currently, hearing my voice, are under the wrath of God, are experiencing God's wrath. Every single one of you who have been given over to your sin, whether it's sexual sin, homosexual desires and acts, whether it's some sin on this list, whether it's gossip or envy, whether it's haughtiness and boastfulness, whether it's faithlessness, whatever it might be, if you are here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are under the wrath of God. You are condemned by your sin. And you know that what you are doing is wrong, and yet you do it anyway, as Paul says in verse 32. I want you to hear the good news of the gospel because it is for you. 
Christ Jesus is dead for you. What he has done on the cross is extended to you as a sinner. And he doesn't say, look, you need to clean yourself up first before you can come to me. And if you clean yourself up, maybe I'll consider forgiving you. No, he says, come as you are. Come as you are. In your sin, in your foolishness, in your impurity and your, in on your, your uncleanness. Acknowledge what you deserve. But acknowledge and hear and recognize that Jesus is your only hope. That his righteousness is the only thing that can cover you so that you will actually be covered. The only thing that will clothe you from the wrath of God on the last day. If you believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed. You will be given true life. You will be declared righteous in God's sight and you will be changed. Because you see the gospel that is the power of God to free us from the condemning wrath of God. The gospel that is the power of God to free us from the penalty of sin is also powerful to free us from the power of sin and even the practice of sin. And yes, this doesn't mean that immediately you will stop struggling with, with all sin or, or stop being tempted by sin. And even if, by God's grace and providence, a temptation that you have been given over to or, or that you give into may cease to be a temptation for you, that doesn't mean that you will not need the Spirit of Christ day by day by day. The power of the gospel comes and gives us the strength to put lust to death, to refuse to be named by our sin, to enable us to walk more and more in holiness and righteousness and purity throughout our life. And so, friend, if you are here and you don't know Christ, you are under the wrath of God. He has given you over in some way to your sin. I plead with you to come to Jesus, find a righteousness outside of yourself. And if you are here this morning and you are already a believer, then what would Paul say to you? He would say, look, you have been freed from, from God's condemning wrath through faith in Jesus, through no work of your own. Therefore, walk in humility. Walk ever with this knowledge of what you deserve, but what Jesus has taken for you in your place. Never trust in yourself that you are righteous and look down on someone else with contempt. Every time you see one of these sins creep up in your own heart and life, remember that apart from Jesus Christ, you would be given over to that sin. But in Jesus Christ, this sin that you see in your heart and life is a sin for which he died. A sin for which he actually now credits you his righteousness in its place. And you have the Holy Spirit enabling you to put that sin to death. Sin's power has been broken. You have died with Christ to sin, Paul's going to tell us in Romans 6. And therefore there is hope. Whatever it is that we look at this list and we say, that's me. Paul would say, yes, you have sinned. But that sin has been forgiven. You have died to that sin. Therefore now, by the Spirit, put it to death. It has lost its control over you. You are not given over to it. So by the grace of God, by the power of God, strive to be more holy even as God is holy. May God 
work in us, in each one of you in this room, wherever you find yourself in this text, may God do what only he can do. Let's pray together. Father, your word has been sown like seed, and now it is up to you to cause the growth. Oh Lord, for some the seed was planted for the first time, and who knows, but that it might take months and years to grow and to bear fruit. Lord, some the seed has been planted for the hundredth or the thousandth time, and the heart is hard, and so Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would break through the hardness and grant softness and receptivity. Oh Lord, some, the seed is there and it is growing. Oh Lord, may this word have been water and fertilizer to the soul. Oh Lord, so that we might continually be humbled as we see our state apart from Christ. Oh Lord, help us, humble us to walk with you in faith and hope and love. Oh Lord, we plead with you to change us. Oh Lord, we thank you you have spared us from your wrath because you have poured it out on Jesus in our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the propitiation for our sins. Help us, we pray, to proclaim this glorious news to all we meet. We pray this in your name. Amen.